Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. It is Wednesday, October 26th, just after 5.17 p.m. Eastern Time. We're starting at a little bit of an odd hour here for reasons that will become clear in just a couple of moments, or reasons that may already be clear to you if you've been watching the Public Order Emergency Commission. It was gripping, edge-of-your-seat stuff today. It really wasn't, actually. It's a bit of a joke, and I'll explain why in a moment's time. We are going to be later on this show, though, talking with Catherine Christensen, who is part of the big legal team. And I, I say by big legal team, I mean it's actually this woman and uh, hundreds and hundreds of uh, members of the Canadian Armed Forces that are looking to take the Canadian military to court over its vaccine mandate. And we haven't talked as much about the Canadian Armed Forces vaccine mandate as we've talked more generally and broadly about federal mandates on this show. But it's an important story, and we're going to be speaking to Catherine in just a little bit of time on this show. But let's talk about where we are with the Public Order Emergency Commission, because we've now gone through what's today's Wednesday. So we just finished, or are finishing soon, the 10th day of testimony. Now, this is midway through week three of a seven-week-long set of hearings that are taking place. And as we spoke about with Keith Wilson on Monday, they could extend this and start going on weekends. So we could have many more days of testimony. And if you were looking for the smoking gun that the government is going to use to justify and defend its invocation of the Emergencies Act, you are sorely disappointed. Sorely disappointed here. And let me explain exactly why that is. Because right now, we are in the midst of the federal government under investigation. It is Justin Trudeau's government on trial. And I don't mean that in a literal sense. I don't mean it in a criminal sense. But Justin Trudeau's government is on trial. He himself said when parliamentarians were voting on the Emergencies Act that it was a confidence motion because he said, if you don't support the government doing something so drastic, it's proof that that government does not deserve to be in power. It's proof that government does not have the confidence of the legislature. So the point that I've made in the past is that by Justin Trudeau's own standards, this is actually a pretty serious thing. If it's found that he was not justified in invoking the Emergencies Act. If at the end of this, Justice Paul Rouleau, the commissioner of the Public Order Emergency Commission, says, yeah, the federal government was not justified in doing this, I think Justin Trudeau has lost the mandate to govern. And I'm not saying that legally he has lost it. I'm saying that morally, politically, he should be gone. So that's what's at stake here. And we have heard testimony from residents of Ottawa. We've heard testimony from the uh, police officers at various levels, the Ottawa Police Service, the Ontario Provincial Police. Uh, we haven't heard, I don't believe, from the RCMP just yet, but we've heard OPP and Ottawa Police. We've heard from intelligence. We've heard from police liaisons. We've heard from commissioners. We've heard from all sorts of people. And what we haven't heard anywhere in that testimony at all is that they requested it. So we can completely shatter that narrative that Marco Mendicino and Justin Trudeau and all of those have put forward, that they were the ones that were just uh, the hapless victims of this. They were the passengers. It was the police that wanted the Emergencies Act. Well, what they haven't been able to proffer up to us is one single police officer who asked for it. Not one. 
And, and Marco Mendicino has done this little two-step on this. He said, well, they were asking for the sorts of things that we needed the emergency Zach to do. Now, I should say, in fairness, Marco Mendicino has trouble finding two IQ digits to rub together to make a fire. Like, this is not a guy that is exactly like the crown prince of the Mensa Society here. So I want to be a little bit kind when I talk to him, except he is also the guy tasked with Canada's public safety. So perhaps it would be important for the guy who is in charge of the public safety division of this country to have a bit more in the sense of, I don't know, intelligence or uh, honesty. Like the reality is Marco Mendicino will eventually become the government's fall guy, I think. Like he, he doesn't know it yet. I sort of see this, and I think a lot of other people see it, that when someone in the government has to be accountable, it's going to be, you know, it's not going to be Justin Trudeau. It's going to be Marco Mendicino, and he'll just be out there with his, like, I stand with Ukraine sign, just, like, furiously trying to scratch it out and put, like, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to on it, or whatever he needs to, to justify saving face. But all of this is to say there has not been a smoking gun from law enforcement, from police intelligence, or anything like that that supports the invocation of the Emergencies Act. And I've been listening. We have a whole team at True North that's been following this day by day. And I'm just waiting because police are very dispassionate in their delivery. So I'm just waiting for one person to just slip into their testimony. Oh, yes. And there was, of course, that uh, violent ring that was uh, that we broke up. And, oh, yeah, of course, there was that threat of violence in Ottawa. But, but it's not there. We've heard confirmation that there were, in fact, bouncy castles. So if uh, there was ever any doubt about the bouncy castles, we know the bouncy castles for sure were there. And so far, no injuries from the bouncy castles have been reported. But it is Justin Trudeau's government on trial. And we cannot let them just turn this into whatever Trudeau does when he's caught breaking the rules, if this goes the wrong way for him, in that it will be a learning opportunity for all of us. No, Canadians already know everything there is to know about this. That's why I think a lot of the media hasn't been covering this. And to be fair, media has been reporting on it, but there, there hasn't been the wall-to-wall -wall coverage like, oh, I don't know, the January 6th hearing in the United States or the uh, Russia probes in the United States, which I think got far more airtime on Canadian television than the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings have so far. And I think that's because there's nothing in them that we're really learning about. I mean, even just to look at today's program, the title of the show, More Testimony Proves Emergencies Act Was Unnecessary. Not going to lie, this is not like a breaking news headline because this has been the theme that has come out of this hearing every single day so far, where police will sometimes say unequivocally, that they didn't need the Emergencies Act to do what it is that they ended up doing, to move in and break up the convoy protest. I'm going to play a clip from OPS, Ottawa Police Service Superintendent Robert Bernier, uh, saying, this is the, the second clip, uh, that he required no additional legal authorities to clear protesters from Ottawa. You took over as event commander on February 10th. That's what I understand from your evidence today? Yes. And your task was to prepare an operational plan? Yes. And at that time, between February 10th and February 13th, when you were preparing the operational plan, was it your assessment that the OPS had the necessary legal tools and powers to execute that operational plan? Yes. And it was not your assessment that you required any additional legal tools or any additional legal powers? 
I would say they were beneficial, but to say necessary, I would say no. And at no time prior to February 14th did you communicate to any of your superiors that you required additional legal tools or legal powers. That is correct. And if you think there was a gotcha there when he talks about it being beneficial, you should know that that is not what the Emergencies Act is there to assess. It's not about whether the government and police made good use of it. The question is whether it was necessary and there were no other legal means available to achieve the desired outcome. And every single police officer that's come forward that's been asked that question has said that it was not necessary. And you look at some of the excuses and rationalizations that will come for that. One of them is, of course, going to be the money. We're going to hear from Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland later about the bank freezes. And they certainly needed the Emergencies Act to freeze the bank accounts, uh, which was, we know, the hallmark of their response to the convoy. Because heaven forbid uh, these truckers get access to donations after vaccine mandates have put many of them out, to, out of work. But they'll also say the tow trucks. And the tow trucks are going to be so critical because we know that police had a hard time finding and the city of Ottawa had a very difficult time finding tow trucks to tow away the big rigs because a lot of the tow truck drivers were supporters of the convoy themselves. So they're like, yeah, I don't want to do it. Like I'm... I'm, I'm on team trucker. I'm not going to do that. And even contractors, existing contractors to the city that were supposed to make themselves available were saying, I, I'm not doing this. So the government will say, well, we, we needed to conscript the tow truck drivers. And that was something we needed and we needed the Emergencies Act for. Now, it's in evidence, and I don't think it's all that contentious or contested, that there were difficulties in getting tow trucks there. But one of the key details I'd remind you of is that the city of Ottawa had available two heavy towing operations, uh, two heavy towing vehicles that belong to the city of Ottawa. They belong to Ottawa Transit or OC Transpo, and they have operators, and they were under the city's direct control, and they never used them. That actually came up last week. They never used the two that they owned, the two that they actually had access to. So maybe the towing shortage wasn't as acute as Ottawa has made it sound. But let's even talk about this because this came up in the discussion, the cross-examination by Superintendent Robert Bernier, that even then, even with the tow truck issues, they didn't need the Emergencies Act. Take a look. Would you agree that the federal emergency power to compel towing services may have been helpful to police and maybe beneficial to police? but it wasn't necessarily necessary to enable police to clear the protests, was it? Um, it yes. Um, however, with a caveat that um, we were having challenges. We were having a hard time up until uh, that, that time on the 13th. So prior to the 13th, I would have said we could have used some help with that. But uh, as things materialized on the, the 13th, I was satisfied that we were good. And you were by you were satisfied that we were good. You're satisfied that the uh, federal emergency power to compel tow, tow trucks wasn't necessary. Correct. Thank you. Um, Interim Chief Bell testified pretty emphatically, and I quote: "In the absence of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, the OPP, uh, the OPS, the OPP, the RCMP, as part of a unified command, were going to clear the protest." Would you agree with that statement? Could you repeat that question again, please? In the, in the absence of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, the OPS, the OPP, 
the RCMP, as part of a unified command, were going to clear the protests. Do you agree with that statement? Yes. Numerous other OPP and OPS witnesses have testified that the federal emergency powers may have been helpful to police in various ways, but they were not necessary. Would you agree with that? Yes. Thank you very much. Those are my questions. So, again, even then, on February 13th, as the Emergencies Act is not yet in play, police are saying, yeah, we had a plan. We weren't worried at that time about the absence of tow trucks. We seem to be moving forward in the right direction without any issues. Now, remember, one of the sidetrack things happening at this time was the negotiations between police and protesters, between the city of Ottawa and protesters, which was easing the burden of this. We're moving trucks from residential areas, concentrating them on Wellington Street. The city of Ottawa was happy with this plan. Convoy organizers were happy with this plan. Police were generally happy with this plan. And the federal government interestingly enough, was it seemed like going through a bit of internal dispute about this. And there was some testimony that took place yesterday between an OPP negotiator, uh, Marcel Bowden, and this testimony revealed conversations he was having with Public Safety Canada. Now, this is the uh, office that has the misfortune of serving Marco Mendicino, uh, the bureaucratic office that exists uh, from government to government. And he was speaking to the Deputy Minister of Public Safety, so the most senior bureaucrat in Public Safety Canada, who it sounds like was more open to the idea of this negotiation working and possibly even talking to the convoy leaders himself. Now, this didn't happen. Now, this tells us a lot, and I'm going to tell you exactly what that is once I play this clip of Marcel Bowden's testimony. Um, if we could go to the top of page three, Deputy Minister Stewart uh, responds to you and raises um, a number of questions, essentially, in those bullet points at the bottom. And if we could just go through those briefly, and if you can tell me whether those those were ever sort of addressed uh, in a conversation would the signatory of the letter or the person who goes to the meeting be putting themselves at risk is that a big concern uh that wasn't a big concern for me okay why so, not well i like we never i, I think you know inspector Moore or superintendent morris spoke to it as far as the violence and stuff in the in in the uh group and so to me um, there wasn't a pile of risk there. Um, I, I personally wasn't concerned, but I know that there would be obviously some sort of assessment uh, from someone before that would happen, right? As far as who's identified from the protest group that would be in the in there. And I'm sure there's people that the government probably wouldn't want to meet with as well, right? Right, which, which that takes us down to the sort of third point um, about POI sheets and there was a concern about who was going to be involved in that negotiation. Did it ever get to that point where you shared a list of names with the government and they, they raised any issue about that? No, because I think the next day he called me in the morning. Is it Saturday? Uh, the 12th is the Saturday. That's Saturday. Right. Yeah, so he called me in the morning the next morning and said that he was not able to uh, make this happen ultimately. Okay, and and why? What? Where did the, because, because I understand you were on board uh, on behalf of the OPP, the OPS was on board. It seems like the RCMP was kind of provisionally on board. So what was, what was the issue? I definitely was not involved in the conversations that stopped that from happening. So I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, no. So, but as far as you know, you got a, you got a call from 
uh, Deputy Minister Stewart yes. the next morning. Yeah, and, and he, he just said that he was not successful ultimately to getting this going forward. Interesting. So the Deputy Minister of Public Safety Canada had been talking to the OPP negotiation lead. Now, just for context, Marcel Bowden of the OPP uh, was in charge in some respects of the police liaison teams, the negotiation teams that were out there to, as their name suggests, to liaise with convoy leaders and convoy organizers. And he thought they were doing a very good job. I mean, it was under these liaisons that they were able to come up with a deal to move the trucks onto Wellington Street. They were liaising left, right, and center, liaising all over downtown Ottawa. And in the course of that, this public safety deputy minister, not a liberal necessarily, not a partisan role. He's open to this. He's talking about meetings and negotiations and safety and all of that. And then he says, leave this with me. I'm going to take it back to my people. And then all that this OPP officer, Officer Bowden knows, is that that got cancelled. Now, we know from other testimony last week that Marco Mendicino was aware of the negotiations. Marco Mendicino personally was aware. His chief of staff was discussing this. So it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that it was the federal government that wasn't interested in this. Now, again, we're not talking about geniuses. We're talking about Marco Mendicino, but I think even Marco Mendicino could figure out what I'm talking about here. The federal government was the one that decided to abandon negotiation. The federal government was the one that decided it wasn't worth talking. So they, right through to the Emergencies Act, had an opportunity. They had a fork in the road. They could have said, we're going to try this other thing to de-escalate that we haven't done in the last three weeks, which is talk to these people, or we're going to double down. We're going to suspend civil liberties. We're going to invoke the Emergencies Act. We're going to freeze their bank accounts. We're going to send in police. And they chose that option. They had another, a Hail Mary option that they could have done, and they avoided it even in the 11th hour. And I think that's so critical. And I want to play, just continuing along with that thread, a little bit of Brendan Miller, who is the, the lawyer representing the convoy leaders, his cross-examination, where he talks about this, and he, he offers a little bit of information there about what meeting that was that the public safety deputy minister referred to. And so in this proposal, of course, it says that upon an agreement to the proposal, uh, you'd provide a police liaison in writing a commitment to government engagement at a later date. And that could be shared uh, in a meeting with the protest leaders, right? I believe so. Right. So the plan was and the recommendation was is that essentially uh, the government of Canada, the political branch of the government of Canada, would agree to a meeting with the protesters, but... Uh, there would be certain conditions to that, and they would have to denounce anything unlawful and get out of downtown Ottawa. Is that fair? Yep. Okay. And <clears throat> in your interactions with deputy minister, with the deputy minister and commissioner Lucky, um, after February twelfth, twenty twenty two, did they tell you anything about what happened with this proposal? I think the proposal was kind of like dead in the water after the thirteenth, um, when the mayor provided his letter. Right. And then it allowed the ability to see the outcome of that. Right. Could we bring up another um, document that was referred to by the commission? Um, it's OPP 00000172. Now, 
I understand this is the, an email from the Deputy Minister of Public Safety, Rob Stewart, to you, right? Yes. Okay. And in the third sentence on the top paragraph, it says, we have a big meeting this afternoon Well, this will be discussed, so I really need your input, right? Yes. All right. Did you know that that meeting was at 3.30 p.m. and that it was with Cabinet and it was the incident response group of the political executive meeting and that your proposal was provided to them? Uh, no. Okay. It was. I can tell you that. And then they invoked the Emergencies Act. Thank you. So I actually don't know how to drop this mic. Like I was thinking I could fiddle around and like pull the screw out and the mic might drop. And I don't know what that means for the rest of the show. Brendan Miller right there should have just taken the mic on the lectern and just like <laughs> just thrown the whole lectern over and be like, I'm headed home. Cabinet decided to not put any stock in negotiation. So instead of saying, well, we were just listening to law enforcement, it was law enforcement officers like Mr. Bowden here who were talking about the power of negotiation, who were talking about the power of liaising. And the federal government actually said, screw what the cops say. We want the Emergencies Act. And this is going to be so key. And when those federal ministers take the stand, they can't just concoct this fake phony emergency any longer. And as I said at the beginning, this is not groundbreaking now. The police are yet again saying they didn't ask for it. They didn't need it. This is becoming the epitome of that old uh, saw about a dog bites man story. Not really news. But we're still going to give it to you because it is challenging the official narrative in every sense, which is something that True North is doing, and I'm so proud we're doing it. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a teaser, I'm going to be in Ottawa next week at the Public Order Emergency Commission, uh, continuing our coverage of this from the belly of the beast. Uh, I just want to put in a plug before we head to a quick break here that uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. We're trying to get to 100,000 subscribers by the end of the month. You can do that by hitting the big red button that says, well, subscribe. And if you're watching on Facebook, once the show wraps up, you can go and do that on YouTube as well. So I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to be shifting gears and talking about the military vaccine mandate in Canada. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. We have talked a lot on this program about vaccine mandates, federal, provincial, international. One that we have not focused on as much is the Canadian Armed Forces vaccine mandate. And part of this is because I, I think it was part of, certainly when I was discussing it, it was part of the broader vaccine mandates that the Liberal government put in last fall for the entire civil service. But there have been different new nuances to it that I, I think make it worth taking an extra look at this. And one of them, I think, is the demographic profile of who it is that's in the Canadian Armed Forces. These are the people at the least risk possible for having serious complications from COVID-19, but also the idea of authority and obedience and the chain of command, these things that have really, I think, complicated the ability for someone to say no to this vaccine or to say no to following the mandate. Well, there's a proposed 
class action now against this vaccine mandate, representing so far hundreds of people that were put on leave whose future careers in the Canadian Armed Forces are still in uncertain territory because of this mandate. This has been fought by Catherine Christensen, who's a a lawyer based in Alberta and the founder of the Valor Legal Action Centre, which is a not-for-profit that is fighting this case. Catherine Christensen joins me now. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Andrew. We're happy to be here. So what is this case about, really? Obviously, the vaccine mandate, incredibly disruptive. I would argue just plain wrong. But we also know that it, it caused a number of issues as far as shortages, confusion, uh, not to mention the, the legal rights aspect of this. But, but what is really the core of this class action you're proposing to bring? Well, Andrew, I've been watching the Canadian Armed Forces for a few years. I, my practice has always been with military and veterans. And I have noticed a real trend in some of this, the things that they were doing to their people. And then last October, I was approached by a, a group of hundreds of uh, military, serving military, who were affected by the first directive, the mandate, and now subsequently mandate two, 2A and 3. And I have to tell you that it was sort of the perfect package to bring what is essentially an abuse of power lawsuit against the Canadian Armed Forces. It's not about the mandate itself. It's about how the Canadian Armed Forces have abused their people and their chain of command is in absolute chaos. And uh, for all of General Ayres talking about everyone has to follow his orders, they aren't. And it's caused some very big consequences for some very dedicated, long-serving members of the Canadian Armed Forces. For people that haven't followed the intricacies of this, when you say Mandate 1, Mandate 2, 2A, 3, what what are you referring to there? What are those different mandates that have come in or updates to the mandate? Right. So uh, last October, the uh, Chief of Defence Staff issued a directive. And the first directive was to bring in that um, COVID-19 vaccines were now mandatory for service in the Canadian Armed Forces. He then subsequently did a couple of amendments with a second directive and then an amendment of that second directive, which I call 2A. And then uh, just recently in the last month, he's brought down Directive 3, which was touted as uh, removal of the mandate. It doesn't actually remove the mandate. It continues if you want to do anything in the Canadian Armed Forces, but what it did was say that, well, if we haven't already released you, which was under the first directives, that if you didn't get the vaccine, you were to be uh, discharged under a 5F, which used to be dishonorable, but has been made honorable in the last couple of years. Some of these people were not released in the 30 days like they were threatened with. And so they've been told now to come back to work, but they've been put into situations where they're sitting by themselves in empty buildings, uh, they've been told they don't basically get to do anything. Uh, in fact, I have one person who is unvaccinated, was told to come back to work, and he's been assigned to uh, help take care of people who are quarantined for COVID-19. So uh, ironically, that's what this is. Uh, he, the chief of defense staff should have said, because under the National Defense Act, uh, Section 126, he is, uh, has the power to say that you must be vaccinated to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces. If you refuse, you are brought with a charge and court-martialed. And they didn't do that. They went to what was called remedial measures 
and I basically did an administrative process, which is completely unanswerable uh, until it gets brought into court, which can take years because it may go through a grievance process. So, uh, and just to confirm, what happens to people <laughs> in that interim period while they're waiting for a court date? Uh, they basically are suspended. They still they can't put anyone in the Canadian Armed Forces under a leave without pay. Uh, the Canadian Armed Forces are different than the federal employees. They have to ask for a leave without pay. They cannot be ordered to take a leave without pay. So that was part of the issue with the first directive because they talked about putting people on leave without pay. Of course, that was challenged and they had to backtrack. Uh, so the people that haven't had anything happen to them in the past year have basically been sitting at home waiting to be released as they were threatened they would be released and they haven't been. Now they've been now, told to come back to work. Why is it that the Canadian Armed Forces mandate seems to be distinct in terms of how it's unfolded and what the challenges are compared to the broader public service mandate that applied just in a blanket way to everyone in the federal public service? Why are these two different animals? Uh, one of the big differences is that uh, how people were treated in the Canadian Armed Forces compared to the federal service. In the federal service, they basically were sent home on leave without pay. When their mandate was suspended, they were told to come back to work. In the Canadian Armed Forces, we have the Chief of Defence Staff going on the national news telling people that don't get vaccinated and want to serve in a uniform aren't worthy, that they're morally weak, that their ethics aren't where they should be, uh, basically name-calling them and isolating them, uh, which is a form of discrimination and I would even argue maybe some harassment. Then we get what actually happened to people in, on the ground as these uh, directives were being unrolled from uh, pregnant women who didn't know if they wanted to take the vaccine, being charged with AWOL because their obstetrician put them in the hospital due to the stress, uh, to young uh, sailors being isolated in a room with four officers and told to sign a piece of paper that they wouldn't follow a lawful order under complete coercion, to a young man made to stand outside in January at attention where all his co-workers go past him and say because he wouldn't take the vaccine he lasted a month before he'd lost 15 pounds of muscle mass and uh, mentally couldn't do it anymore and he voluntarily released because he just couldn't cope with the, the punishment that his his uh, commanding officer was giving him I mean if she had done that to someone who was a prisoner of war she'd be charged with a war crime and be brought up in, in the Hague for it this is how these people were being treated. It wasn't a case that they were just told, well, go home, and then they just sat at home and did nothing. They were actually being deliberately isolated. They were told they would go to jail. Uh, they were told that they would, their families would starve, uh, that they would receive no benefits, that their pensions were gone. All of these things are not true. Um, and so it was very different for these people who were in uniform. The, that absolutely dedicated their lives to serving Canada and then were being treated like garbage and thrown out like garbage, in my opinion. I, I want to go back to what you said a moment ago about being asked to agree that they were not following a lawful order, because everyone knows that in military there's a chain of command and that you do need to have a, a level of obedience, but it, this has been clarified over time, and, and it's that you have to obey lawful orders. And interestingly enough, just this week, there was the story in the Canadian press that uh, the chief of the defense staff was warned that this mandate 
might not actually be a lawful order. So there isn't actually something we could take for granted here that the Canadian Armed Forces can rely on that this was, in fact, a lawful order. Exactly. The Canadian Armed Forces have a reputation internationally for having smart people, people that are willing to question and willing to say to their chain of command, I don't think that's a lawful order or no, I will not do that based on my ethics or my religion, whatever the case may be. And so that's what they came up against when they issued these directives, because how it usually works in the military is you don't get the chief of defense staff doesn't issue a directive. He issues an order. And then the directive is the instructions to his chain of command, how that order is going to be carried out. That didn't happen here. He instead brought these directives out and said, well, that's an order. But he, it was, they were so vague and so jumbled that the chain of command across the country all implemented it differently. It was absolute chaos. Someone on one base was doing another, another uh, admiral on the, the West Coast was doing something else. So this caused people to say, is this a lawful order? Um, and the other part of it is, uh, Andrew, is their rights. Just because they put on a uniform doesn't mean they gave up their rights as a Canadian citizen. They still maintain all those rights. And one of the rights you have is to bodily autonomy and whether you wish to consent to a medical treatment. And that was what the uh, chief of defense staff tried to take away from these people. Uh, we have the admiral of the, the, or the vice admiral who's uh, commander of the Navy now uh, telling people that they didn't have bodily autonomy if they, went, if they were in the Canadian Armed Forces. Well, that raises a lot of questions, because if they have no bodily autonomy, then uh, does that mean the chief of defense staff can say, well, I don't have enough women in the military, so therefore I can order uh, people to have sex changes? Because that's what he's saying. He says he has the power to do, order any medical treatment for any member of the Canadian Armed Forces, and they're not allowed to disagree. So this, is, uh, this is part of why I, I chose to do this, because it, it is extremely uh, upsetting to the people I represent. And it was upsetting to me as I started to hear the stories. There are some deployments where certain vaccines would make sense. If you're going to Mali, for example, you should probably get your meningitis vaccine and so on. The rationale for COVID vaccination ha has been, I think, increasingly uh, precarious, uh, the, the, the logic on which it rests, especially as we've learned it doesn't block transmission. So whether you get vaccinated as a soldier does not have any bearing on whether the person you're bunking with is going to get COVID increasingly. So what is the rationale on which the Canadian Armed Forces has relied? Or is it simply, we're telling you to do it, so you have to do it? Well, part of what they relied on was a draft from the Public Health uh, Canada, Public Health Agency of Canada. And it was a draft. We, we have searched for a final version. They can't produce one. So it, they had a draft document from Public Health Canada, which the Peckford uh, questioning, the Peckford documents have revealed that Public Health Canada never recommended vaccination as a mitigation, uh, mitigation measure, I guess I could call it. So they relying on that certainly isn't uh, going to be standing up. And we had the chief of defense staff uh, on national media saying that his re reasoning was that it was to prevent transmission that we were going Which to the Canadian Pfizer doesn't forces. say anymore. Right, exactly. And the Canadian Armed Forces were supposed to set an example. In fact, in his first directive, 
and other subsequent directives, the first priority was to set an example for the Canadian population. That's not a reason to mandate a medical treatment to your troops. That, that's not taking care of your people. Because if it's an, a vaccine that isn't even fully tested yet, I mean, uh, the uh, Dr. Lorenko from the Government of Canada admitted under questioning and under oath that the human trials are not over, that the human trials are the general population. And the other factor we have here, Andrew, is the people that serve in the Canadian Armed Forces are extremely low risk to, to die from COVID or have serious COVID. They're fit, they're young. There, was, there has been more vaccine injuries than anything else from, the, from this whole thing. And they uh, can't ever point to one death in the Canadian Armed Forces from COVID. They can't even point to serious illness of anyone in the Canadian Armed Forces. So how are you rationalizing a treatment to your people that is more dangerous to them than the actual disease itself? Yeah, and I think that's such a critical point here. It, it, it's a critical point because the, the vaccine is something that I think should, for any reason, be a personal choice. If you feel it will put you in better standing, take it. If you don't feel it uh, that way, don't take it. But but if you look at the numbers, no one has ever argued, even the most alarmist, that COVID is a death sentence for a fit, healthy, 20-something, 30-something-year-old. And to the contrary, I mean, for 20, 30, 40-year-old men, we know that the vaccine itself, and numerous studies have showed this, actually poses more risk when you're talking about things like myocarditis and other things. And, and I, I don't even want to make this a scientific discussion because it should be based on, on individual choice. But I, I think your point is a valid one. And, if, and I take you at your word there. There has not been a, a single COVID fatality in the Canadian Armed Forces, you say. Right. Not a one. But I can tell you there's been lots of vaccine injuries from myocarditis. I have clients in this lawsuit who have had to have open heart surgery that were fit and healthy. I, and I, I, I know of deaths fit and healthy young men who died in their sleep, which should not be happening. So, wow. uh, you know, I question uh, the, the, the rationale behind this because I don't think they have, if they want to say they relied on the science, I don't think the science is backing them up. What's the, the timeline of your legal challenge? I, I expect to be filing in the next few months, as you can imagine. I have uh, over 300 people confirmed as plaintiffs. There's a couple hundred more that have reached out, uh, but we've set a deadline cutoff of uh, October 31st on Monday. And then uh, you can imagine writing several hundred affidavits. And I would say I have, you know, a truckload, 100, about 100,000 pages of evidence uh, to make sure it's all ready before we head into the court. Uh, and the statement of claim is ready. I'm just getting all the rest of the, I's dotted and T's crossed to bring it forward. Uh, it is coming. It is not going to go away. And just to, to put kind of the technicalities forward here, this is a proposed class action. So you're fighting this on behalf of all members of the Canadian Armed Forces, even those who aren't members of this legal challenge, correct? Yes, if I can get it certified as a class action, absolutely. Uh, the other thing is that to uh, counter the government's favorite strategy of running people out of money, I created a nonprofit, the Valor Legal Action Center, which is uh, helping cover uh, the cost of the litigation because litigation against the government is very expensive. But it also means that um, because it, the nonprofit runs on donations, people weren't having to come out 
and uh, hire a lawyer for a couple hundred thousand dollars each to bring their claim forward. That's why we put together the group, we put together the nonprofit, because I firmly believe this is a question that needs to be answered in a court of was that a lawful order and was it handled in the way it should have been handled or should he have used the National Defense Act as he had the power to do and chose not to. And we'll put that up on the screen there right now, ValorLegalActionCenter.org. And that's the Canadian spelling center with an R-E, ValorLegalActionCenter.org. Catherine Christensen joins me now. Catherine, thank you so much for your work on this. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. That was Catherine Christensen here of the Valor Legal Action Center. My thanks to Catherine and my thank you to all of those people she's representing for their service, past, present, and hopefully future to this country. The uh, armed forces are, are very near and dear to my heart, and I know those of a great many of our listeners. So we thank you. And even if the government has been so tremendously ungrateful for your service, know that most Canadians are not, and, and most Canadians stand with you. That'll do it for me for today. We'll be back on Friday with Fake News Friday with yours truly, Aaron Harrison Faulkner. And I also am going to next week be in Ottawa. I'm going into the belly of the beast. I'll be there for the Public Order Emergency Commission hearings. We've got some great stuff on the docket, it looks like. So I'll be covering that, and I'll still find a way to deliver my show to you from Ottawa. And the one thing I will say, just in our closing moments here, we are still doing this month our drive to get to 100,000 YouTube subscribers. If you want to join this, you can go to YouTube, hit the subscribe button. If you're on YouTube right now, all you need to do is just go like an inch below this video. Like you could just like point down or maybe it's over. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere over. It's somewhere over here. And just click that red subscribe button. If you're watching on Facebook, head on over to YouTube and click subscribe. And we thank you so much to the nearly 100,000 of you that are already there. And if you want to chip in to support this show and the journalism that True North is doing, you can head on over to donate.tnc.news and donate there. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you later. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.